Okay, well, we'll just get underway. We're, we're here tonight really to finally finish this lengthy study on the atonement of Christ, specifically trying to figure out the extent of the atonement. We've been studying this, this big question for a while now, namely, for whom did Christ die? That's the question of, of the extent of the atonement. For whom did he die? On whose behalf was he up there on the cross making atonement? I'll, I'll very briefly reframe this issue for you one more time. We've done it so many times, but this debate with two sides. On the one side, you have Arminianism, and they hold to unlimited atonement, which claims that Jesus died for all people without exception. God loves all people in the same way. He wants all to be saved. And he sent Jesus to die for all people in the exact same way. Although in our study, we found some very glaring and, and huge problems with this view. At the same time, on the other side stands Calvinists who believe that Jesus died for the elect only. This view is known as limited atonement or definite atonement, particular redemption. And they teach that Jesus made an actual atonement on the cross. And while the atonement was limited in its extent, it was unlimited in its power, in its efficacy. It actually secured the salvation of those for whom it was intended. And so, a couple weeks ago, Lesson 21, we really surveyed and explored this view of limited atonement, tried to understand it, what they believe and why. And then here we are, we're in Lesson 22 now, which is a, a two-parter. This is part two, which is why you have just half of a handout, really. This is the second part where we're now evaluating this view according to Scripture. And what we've found so far, and, and we'll continue to find, is that the weight of Scripture leads us toward this view, toward that of limited atonement. You know, last week in part one, if you were here with us, you remember, we combined several arguments into this one, you know, mega argument, this one big reason for why we we accept and hold to and are convinced of limited atonement. Namely that, it's it's a mouthful, but you, you remember from last week, limited atonement fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation, which includes the Son's priestly office and the Father's special love. I know it's, it's wordy, but we really took three big reasons for limited atonement and put them into one reason because they mesh together. We spent all of our time last week on that one alone, really exploring it in Scripture, covering lots of verses, showing how that really says so much about definite atonement or limited atonement. So that was last week. We're going to leave it there. Now we come back today to really continue and and finish off this lesson by considering a second combined reason for believing in and supporting a limited atonement. And so here today we are once again, we're combining several reasons into one. So it's another kind of mega reason why we would hold to a limited atonement or definite atonement. But we're going to unpack it and show it has the support of Scripture And it decisively moves us in the favor of seeing a definite atonement. So that's why your handout, which is just the part two, it just has one point. It's a second point, but it'll take all of our time. Namely, limited atonement upholds an actual atonement, which is made clear by the particular language of Scripture. Limited atonement upholds an actual atonement, which is made clear by the particular language of Scripture. Now, real quick... Before we get into it, I'll take a, a quick timeout announcement in a way and just say today, actually, as I was finishing this up on further consideration, 
I decided to split this in half. So this was going to be another hour plus lesson, like last week was an hour plus. So I'm going to split it into two, but actually for another reason, namely because this is one of those mornings where I woke up with that sore throat. And I don't any other symptoms. I feel totally fine. I, I'm hoping it's just allergies. But I decided just to kind of spare the voice a little bit to cut it into like a two-parter. And so we might actually end early tonight. We'll see how it goes. That, that being said, it's just kind of one of those weeks that you probably had where like one thing after another piles up. So just to announce for the sake of your prayers, you know, Angel had to go into the hospital Monday night with these contractions. Thought she was she going into labor. We didn't know, and a lot of contractions going on. Thankfully, she didn't, she wasn't, but she was having a lot of uh, contractions before. You still got, you know, six, seven weeks to go here, so we've got to keep that baby in there for a little longer. She's not on bed rest, but it's like one step away from bed rest, so she's got to take it easy. And then we found out Tuesday, Noah has a little heart murmur, which can be, they have something called an innocent heart murmur. It could be nothing, but it could not be nothing, so he's got to go next week and get the EKG and then we found out yesterday Oliver's grandfather passed away. He'll be gone Sunday for that funeral, going up to Oregon and Washington for all that action. So it's just one of those weeks, right? So I guess that's what I get for preaching on the problem of evil on Sunday. You know, you're going to have a week of just some, some suffering, some trials and tribulations. But, you know, it's kind of ironic, too, because I look back and all throughout 2017, I actually had good health. I didn't miss a single Sunday from sickness, which is, which is good for me. I, I'm pleased with that. And now that we have Oliver, Oliver on board, if I do get sick, hey, no big deal. He can fill in. Except this Sunday. He's going to be gone this Sunday. So this is perhaps God's sense of humor or timing. I'm just, I'm, all that goes to say, I'm kind of taking it a little easy. And so I know I'm, I'm wasting a lot of time and words here, but we'll, we'll probably end a little early tonight. And now you know why. Anyway. We did, I, did, I did make you go way overtime last week, so I guess we'll make it up for you today. And we'll get you out a little early tonight. But anyway, so we're going to start into the second reason <clears throat> and really get through just three or four of these verses, and we'll save the, uh, the rest for next time. So limited atonement upholds an actual atonement, which is made clear by the particular language of Scripture. Let's get into this now. And here we're really combining two primary reasons for holding to limited atonement into one. And the essence of this argument is the contention that Scripture teaches an actual atonement. Not a potential, but an actual atonement. On the cross, Jesus was making an actual atonement. Not a potential, not a provisional atonement. He didn't come to make people savable, but to actually save a people, to secure a people. He was a real substitute sacrifice for a particular group of people, not just a, an overall sacrifice for you know, people in general or sin in general. That's why this is called, by the way, a definite atonement or a particular redemption. He was really saving a people on the cross, not just a general sacrifice for sin. I've said several times now that everyone limits the atonement one way or another. And I repeat it because you need to get this point. Everybody believes in limited atonement. Just what are you limiting? The Arminian limits the power or the efficacy of the atonement. They, they gain an atonement that was made for all people. So yeah, it's for everybody. But then they, they must sacrifice the power of that atonement. It doesn't actually secure the, your salvation. 
this, this atonement can, can ma- it makes people savable, but it doesn't actually secure the salvation of anyone in particular. It's limited in, in what it does. And on the flip side, the Calvinist does indeed limit the extent of the atonement. It was not made on behalf of all people without exception. But the Calvinist upholds an atonement truly unlimited in power. And so what Jesus accomplished on the cross was an actual atonement that completely and forever and irrevocably saves the people for whom it was made. And so which of these two limited atonements is correct? That's, that's what this study is about. Everybody limits the atonement. Does scripture limit the extent of the atonement or the power of the atonement? And, and what we're really arguing for here is, is that Scripture really nowhere limits the power of the atonement or the efficacy of the, to- of the atonement, but does in fact limit the extent of the atonement. The, the language of Scripture makes this clear, and this is where the, the primary argument for unlimited atonement falls short. You know, we've learned for weeks that for Arminians, their strongest argument in favor of unlimited atonement is what? It's, it's all those passages where you have supposed universal language used in connection with the atonement of Christ. You know, all those passages that say Jesus died for the world, or he died for all. You have these words, world and all. And so what they'll typically do is just list some of these proof texts, claim, well, look, the surface reading is plain and obvious. Jesus died for the world. That means everybody without exception Case closed. It's over. But as we started to see before, it's actually not case closed. It's not an open and shut case. We've already seen plenty of examples where this language is used in actually a limited sense, where it does not mean all people without exception, but all people without distinction, like all kinds of people. As you know, all words have a range of meaning, and even a word like world can have lots of different meanings. And the context is going to dictate the final meaning of all words. That's just how languages operate. And so this is where our unlimited atonement proponents fall short, where they just list some proof texts, but they, they fail to actually demonstrate that these refer to all people ever born without exception. We saw that last week with 1 John 2, verse 2. Rather, as you deal with these passages one by one, Taking the context into account, you find no clear cases of truly universal language. Rather, the context always limits the language. And really, this this only makes sense because as we're going to see more and more, Scripture upholds this actual atonement. Jesus was truly saving a people on the cross. And it's made clear by the particular, particular language of Scripture, which is what this second big point is all about. And so now we're just going to do Bible study. We're just going to go through a bunch of verses. Like I said, we'll get, we'll get through a bunch tonight, a bunch next week, to demonstrate this fact. In fact, the, the silver lining and cutting tonight a little bit short, I actually dropped some key verses off of this list for time. And, well, we can just do them next week now. We'll have some, a little bit extra time next week. So we'll be able to add in some, some extra key verses as well. So it'll work out. Now to start off real quick, I just listed... Again, we've seen this before, some examples of universal language limited by the context. These are places where you have words like all or world, and they don't mean all people without exception. Ar- Arminians like to, I guess, make fun of Calvinists and, and just say, well, you guys, 
when you, you have to argue that all doesn't mean all, and world doesn't mean world, and you're all, you have to twist words. It's not twisting words, it's just what does the context tell us a word means? So here's some examples, you know, Mark 1.5. You might remember these from before. Oh, I'm just going to summarize these. You know, it says, all Judea and all Jerusalem went out to see John the Baptist. Does all mean all in this case? All people without exception? So literally every citizen of Jerusalem went to see John the Baptist. We actually know that's not true. The Pharisees did not go see him. So everyone agrees all does not mean all people without exception. It's just used generally. It's hyperbole. And that's, that's common. John twelve nineteen. the Pharisees say, look, the world has gone after Jesus. Does world mean world there? Does it mean everyone ever born? Obviously not. The context is pretty clear. It's, this is, again, hyperbole. Really, it's just a small portion of people are being spoken of. It's actually using world to talk about relatively just a few people. And the context makes that clear. Romans three twenty three. all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does all mean all in that passage? Without exception? I think there's one exception, and that'd be Jesus Christ, right? So it's not all without exception, it's all with exception. And so the context of Scripture makes that one pretty clear. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me. Okay, really? So murder is now lawful in the New Covenant? That's okay. Adultery, that's okay? No. Obviously, I hope that's obvious to you. He's talking the frame of Christian liberties. The context makes very clear. He's talking about Old Covenant to New Covenant transition, transitional matters. And all things does not mean all things in that case. It's, it's very much with exception, not without exception. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. You can read for yourself. But Paul himself explains how all doesn't mean all. He, he gives his own exception uh, to things submitted to, to, the, to Christ. So anyway, we've seen this list before, an even longer list where Scripture itself uses these words like all and world and the whole world, yet the context actually limits them to, to actually not talk about every, all people ever born. Which again, that's what the Armenian is just assuming, that these passages refer to everyone ever born. No exceptions. And we're, let's do Bible study now with, with the rest of these verses, and we're going to find out actually there, there are plenty of exceptions and limitations by the language and the context of Scripture. So open to John 1. Let's start John one twenty nine. Perfect place to start. John one twenty nine. I'll read it as you're turning. You can get there. We'll be in John for a little while anyway. It's talking about John the Baptist, and it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away... The sin of the world. Christ, he takes away the sin of the world. This is a a perfect example of the whole issue we're talking about here. Jesus, he's the Lamb of God, and he takes away the sin of the world. There's two key words there that you have to interpret. Takes away, it's one word in the Greek, takes away and the world. What do these mean? Does world mean all people ever born. All people without exception. Or does it refer to all people without distinction, meaning all sorts of people? Which is it? You, have to, you do have to interpret. Now, of course, if world refers to all people ever born, then we would say Jesus could not really have taken away their sin. 
Because then they wouldn't go to hell. If Jesus truly and completely takes away your sin, you have no, no sin left to pay for in hell, you, you'd be spared from hell. And so, uh, obviously, the Arminian is forced to reinterpret the meaning of takes away and, and lessen it to, to really mean, you know, potentially takes away. He potentially takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't actually take away their sin. You see what I'm saying here? They're, they're forced to do that. They're going to uphold world to mean everyone ever born, but they're forced to therefore reinterpret takes away to mean, you know, potentially takes away, not like actually. You've got to believe for him to actually take away your sin. The Calvinist, Calvinist, however, is going to fully uphold the meaning of takes away as a term of atonement. Which we studied before, this word iro in the Greek is used to refer to imputing sin or bearing the punishment of sin. And Jesus, he takes away our sin by taking it upon himself. And that happened on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And never is this work spoken of as being potential or provisional. I don't see a verse on that. And so Calvinists, they're going to uphold the atonement terminology. That when it says takes away, it means takes away. And therefore, though, the Calvinist is going to to limit the understanding of the word world. But here the Calvinist would say that he does this, and it's fully within reason to do so, though. Why? Because the word world, or cosmos in the Greek, we get the word, word cosmos from it ourselves, it, has, it can be used in a plethora of different ways. And in John's gospel alone, John uses this word for world in at least seven different ways. Just in John alone. I'll list them for you. John uses world to speak of the orderly universe, the earth itself, the human inhabitants of the earth, mankind alienated from God, the kingdom of evil forces, the public around Christ, Jews in particular, or men out of every tribe and nation, but not every tribe and nation. And there's even more meanings in, uh, elsewhere in Scripture. That's just John's usage, and we're in the Gospel of John, so we'll stick with that. And notice, only one of these meanings includes every single person ever born. Uh, otherwise, they used, the, the word world is used in a actually much more limited sense, like we saw before, where the Pharisees said the, the, the world is going after Jesus. They did not mean every single person ever born. They just meant really just the general locale. Anyway, so as with all words, though, the context is going to have to make clear which, which meaning is being used. And that's what the context does. It tells us all words have a range of meaning. The context tells us which meaning is being used in this instance. And here's a perfect example where the context must limit the meaning of world. Because we know from Scripture that people go to hell because their sins have not been taken away. That's, that's why they perish. Because Christ has not taken away their sins. And so world here cannot mean all people without exception. It must mean all people without distinction. All kinds of people. The Jew and the Gentile. And, and that's the better choice. We're going to see that time and time again. Christ, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world, of all people without distinction. But not all people without exception. Not all are saved. And if he truly took away the sins of everyone ever born, 
How can you not say all would be saved? You have to empty uh, the atonement terms of their meaning. You see something similar in John 3.16. So you can turn over there now to John 3.16. This question came up last week by Tim, and he's not here, so he's going to have to get the, the audio. Uh, Tim Martin, that's okay. John 3.16, I'm sure you know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is another great example where Armenians will, will read this, they'll stop at the surface reading of the text, And they just assume a world. That means everybody. Everybody ever born. All people without exception. They fail to prove that though. Because like we said, world can mean at least seven different things in John's gospel. I've never seen them really demonstrate that world means everybody ever born. They just assume it and say, case closed. It's, It's so obvious. What's wrong with you? Now, sure, we can say in a manner of speaking that God loves all people, for all people are made in his image. That's true. But we've already argued for, in the past, God's special love. He has a a select love, a special love, uh, a redeeming love, a saving love that is for his chosen ones. We've we've established that in the past. And so we have to ask, though, what, what is meant by the word world here? I don't just want to assume it, even if they ridicule us for, for trying to mince words. Okay, whatever. I'm just, I just want to know, though, what does the word mean here? That's just Bible study. And we go case by case, make no assumptions. What does world mean here? Like I said, no case is made for all without exception. And I would argue that the context of John indicates world here refers to mankind in alienation from God. It's one of the definitions I gave you before, the ways John uses world. Mankind, in general, in alienation from God. This world, which God made, it's fallen, but God loves it. And God showed that love by sending Jesus to save all people without distinction. Meaning, all kinds of people from all over the world. Another example, what I would argue, it means all without distinction. All kinds of people. Not all without exception, which is what the Armenian says. This fits the context of John 3. John 3.16 takes place in a conversation, remember? Between whom? Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Jewish religious leader. He's talking with Jesus, a rabbi. And Christ is letting Nicodemus know about entrance into God's kingdom. That's what their conversation is all about. How does one get into the the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? The the, the kingdom of God's love. How do you get in? And Christ tells him that kingdom entrance is not about first birth. It's not about your first birth, which is what the Jews assumed wrongly. Hey, I'm born a Jew. I'm in. That's it. I'm born a Jew. I'm going to be in the kingdom. They, They believe salvation by first birth. If you're a Jew, you're in, you're God's chosen people, you're good to go. But that's wrong. Just being born a Jew doesn't make you a kingdom citizen. Christ and Paul taught that over and over again. Rather, it's about the second birth. Kingdom entrance comes by your second birth, not your first birth. And obviously that's referring to being born again, born from above, like he talks about in John 3 very famously, right? 
You must be born again, spiritually, redeemed, made new, if you're going to enter God's kingdom. Now, along these lines, Jesus also informs Nicodemus that God sent Jesus in his love, not just for Israel, but for the world, to save the world. And this is God's love for the world of sinful man on display. It's a love without distinction, that Christ was not sent just for the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. This is the world, all people, without distinction. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, slave, free. This is God's love for this fallen world. He sent Christ to save all kinds of people, not just the Jews. Like I said, fitting the context, this is a conversation with a Jewish religious leader. But all the nations are included in God's loving plan of salvation. Now, some Arminians like to make a big deal here of, of the human side of this passage, namely where, where Christ says, whoever believes will not perish. But there's really no problem here. Like, everyone believes that. No one disagrees with that. There, there's no contention there. From a human perspective, that's obviously true. And that's what we preach. Whoever believes will be saved. If you believe, you will be saved. That just that goes without saying. But scripture also teaches us about election that only those whom the Father calls and draws will believe. And so really it only affirms that God sent Jesus into the world to show his love for those who will believe. Who are, we learned last week, the elect. This verse is more like Revelation 5.9 that, that Jesus purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He didn't purchase every tribe and tongue and people and nation with his blood. He purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is God's love for the world. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to redeem with his blood men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what John 3.16 means. And so in all, nothing in John 3.16 proves or demonstrates that world means all people ever born or all people without exception. It's sentimental. People like to say that, like, yeah, God, God loves the world. He loves everybody. And again, we'll say that in a, in a general common grace manner of speaking. For all people are made in his image. But I think John 3.16 actually is making a stronger case from the context that this is, this is another reference to God's particular love for the nations. His plan of redemption is for the nations. wasn't just for Israel, but for all the nations. And, and that love is evidenced by sending Christ for all people without distinction. It's not just for the Jews, but for, for others as well. And just as a reminder, too, for the Arminian who believes that Jesus died for all people ever born, as a show of God's love, right? God loves everybody, so Jesus died for everybody. That they might be saved? Remember this point we made weeks ago that they still have to account for people who were already in hell when Jesus came. Right? Did Jesus, did God love them too? And therefore, did God send Jesus to die for them too, to atone for them as well? I mean, if not, then I guess they weren't, they're not included in the world here. I guess God didn't love them. But if they are included, if Jesus atoned for people who were already in hell, Why are they still in hell? This is this uh, unbeatable conundrum the Armenian finds himself in. We exposed that weeks ago. We'll we'll leave it there. 
but I'll, I just bring that up to say that, you know, they can't so easily just say, God loves everybody, and a uh, case closed. You can always tell them, well, what about those already in hell when Christ came? What, what happened to them? Did God love them or not? Anyway, let's move on. I think we're going to make it through one more here. Uh, Romans 8, let's turn there now. Now, here's a passage we looked at last week as well, but we're going to see some extra verses here and looking at it from a, from a different angle. Romans 8, this, this is a good example, it's an ironic example, because you have a passage here that uses universal language in connection with Christ's death. That's in verse 32, but Arminians, they don't use this as one of their support verses. They leave this one out. And why is that? It's because the context makes this so clear that that all here means not all people without exception, but rather the elect. It's all of the elect. This is a verse that's so clear of of Christ's saving intention was for the elect that they, they just leave this out. Look at verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Your surface reading, there's that key word, all, right? God delivered Jesus for us all. Surface reading, everybody, right? But like you said, there's a reason they don't use this verse in their list of proof texts because it's just too clear that this is actually only talking about the elect. Let me show that to you now. You know, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So you have this mention of us again and again in the context. Who's the us here? The, the us is it's the church. It's the same referent as those people in verses 28 through 30. Back at verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the the firstborn of many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. So so the us hearing it, and then what shall we say? If God is for us, who's against us? The us in verse 31, it's the same as those in verses 28 through 30. It's the call, the predestined. The elect. And if you don't believe me, verse 33 just just makes it clear. It just tells you outright, this is talking about the elect. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And God delivered Jesus over for the elect, that God might justify them, just as Christ intercedes for this group of people, as we learned last week as well. And so this, this passage where it says God delivered him over for us all. The, really, the key word there is us. It's not, it's not just all. It's all of us. And us being the predestined, the called, the chosen, the elect ones. Those are the people for whom God delivered over Christ. 
that he might in time justify them and redeem them as Christ intercedes for them as high priest. And then as you keep going on, verses 35 through 39, you know, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And long story short, nothing. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, verse 37. Nothing can separate us from this love, verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We find that this love of God, you want to talk love of God, we mentioned last week, this is the special love of God on display. And we find that this love, it's in Christ, it's for those called, predestined, chosen in Christ, and it's a securing love. It secures and preserves those who receive it, such that if, if you are in this love, if you're among the elect, you can't be separated from it. You never will be separated from this love. This is a special, particular redeeming love that saves all those for whom it was given and this love is not for everyone because not all are saved some people they are separated from the love of god and that's because god did not give his son over for them that's just what verse 32 and following says if god had delivered jesus over to death for them they would have been saved they would have received this special love of god And they would have come to faith, they would have been justified, and nothing would have separated them from that love. Because like Paul said, nothing can do that. Nothing can separate us, not even ourselves. There's no exceptions. No created thing can separate us from this love, this choosing, particular, definite, electing love of God. And so all in all, this is a a crystal clear passage using atonement terminology that shows that the love of God on the cross was a particular love. That the cross was really the the punctuation mark of God's true love, his special love, his saving love. It was a distinguishing love, and it was not for everyone. Rather, Calvary was a display of God's particular love, and it saves and secures all those for whom it was intended. And and that, that group of people is explicitly stated in this passage, which is why Arminians stay away from this one, and it's the elect. Verse 31, verse 30, or 33, rather, uh, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, we'll leave this one here for now, just because of uh, time and, and voice. We'll, we'll, we'll stop here. Like I said, though, the good news is uh, I had to leave out some important verses. You had to, I had to just cut something for the sake of time, and we would have gone way over time anyway if, if I were to keep going. But we'll be able to come back next week, and we'll literally just, Lord willing, pick up right where we left off. We're going to keep going on this Bible study and just go through more verses. And this is the, the labor you have to do in Bible study, one by one, context by context. Study the Word. What does it teach? What, what do these words mean? We'll see more key verses Some using that universal language, like he died for all or for the world or so forth. And see what each one means. And uh, we'll find a very consistent testimony that the language is much more limited than the surface reading might, might say. And that's because scripture teaches an actual atonement. That Christ actually atoned and, and secured the salvation of those for whom he died. And that is not for everyone. Not all are saved. It's for his bride, his people, his, his church. So we'll just pick up right where we left off next week. And we'll end it here. If you have any questions, you can come see me after and, or save them for next week.
Well, I'm going to pray. Let's go ahead and finish. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this special love. We don't want to just gloss over Romans 8 without uh, worshiping you and remembering this love. For at the very least, we, we, who, we here who confess Christ and are in Christ, we have received that love. It certainly applies to us, and we thank you for it, that it was a, a special love, a saving love. We know and confess we were, we were lost. And on our own, we would never be found. We, we did not seek after you. And, and we were blind. We were hopeless, lost, enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan, Lord. And unless you lifted the blinder off our eyes and gave us a new heart, unless you made us born again by the Spirit, we would never see. So we thank you for this love and, and uh, what you've done for us in sending Christ, that we might receive it, that we might be justified and made right with you. Thank you, Lord. I pray everyone here remembers what Christ did for them if, if they confess you and and, and their heart, and they praise you as they remember and, and want to live for you. That they, they seek to turn from sin and, and give their lives over more and more to you. That we might live out this special love of God and, and show that love to others in our lives, and our holiness. And for any here who might not even have received this love, Lord, I pray that they would see Christ now and, and repent, turn. That you promise the one who cries out to you in faith and confesses their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. We know, Lord, you must do a work in their heart first, since we pray that. And I pray any here that might not be saved, that you would humble them and, and turn them to Christ and, and save them now even. For now, Lord, we thank you for this study, though, and, and our time together. May you keep us till next week. And uh, may we continue on learning more about Christ and the work he, he did for us on the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.